From Ontic Mind, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, COVID and surgical devices. But our devices, they are high speed and they may well therefore generate an aerosol. And um, with that aerosol may come many viruses, including um, SARS-CoV. The premise for mask wearing during the current pandemic is based to a large extent on the physics of droplet spread. Aerosol dispersion of SARS-CoV-2 is discussed, but it remains unclear how important it is in a daily setting. But what if you were to spend time in a contained environment with an aerosol-producing device? What if that contained space is the operating room and the aerosol producer is just a foot away from your face? This is the scenario investigated by Aman Chandra, my guest today. I'll let him explain. We're recording this interview on May 11th. This is a a topic that is highly relevant now. I suspect it's going to be highly relevant um, for the indefinite future. I acknowledge that things may change between now and when this airs. Having said that, as physicians, we are in contact with patients with infectious viruses all the time. Particularly, we encounter patients with seasonal flu every year. Now, COVID-19 has a relatively high R0. What is R0 and why is that important? So thanks, Josh. Um, R0 is is an estimate of of infectivity. So uh, put it put simply, it's the number of cases that will be directly generated by one case of, a, of your disease in a susceptible population. Now, that sounds like a lot of provisos, but that's essentially what it is. So for, for seasonal flu, so you've got to appreciate that these are estimates and they are based on, on, on population studies and, and, and various environments, which are all very variable. So it's very difficult to get an accurate, an absolutely scientific accurate figure. But for seasonal flu, it's probably in the region of 1 to 1.3, which means just over one other person might be affected by an um, incident case. For COVID-19, for, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, this is, meant, this is thought to be in the region of 2.5 to 3 which means on average, more than two additional cases will be generated in a susceptible population. Now that latter figure, so that latter phrase I just said about in a susceptible population is key to um, why this figure is malleable. Environmental um, circumstances, demography, modeling will all change the figure. So isolation, social isolation and distancing can have significant impact on it. So although 2.4 is what the figure is, is in a normal open society, Currently in the UK, it's, it's estimated now, today on the 11th of May, that this R0 for SARS-CoV-2 is less than one. So less than one is where you want a, a, an R0 to be, to be, to suggest that the infectivity is under control. So less than one means that the incidence curve has a negative slope. You know, exactly. that, that, that is, Something that like is that. Going Something through. like that. Exactly right. So, you know, the numbers of people that will, you will pass on to, to will be less than one. Exactly right. So it's... It's, it's not growing, it's, it's shrinking. But now, current recommendations with social distancing um, are, are based on the idea of uh, how widely droplets can, can spread. It's important, I gather from reading your article, uh, to make the distinction between droplets and aerosol. What is the difference between a droplet and an aerosol? And why is this important generally? And particularly, why is this important in the context? Yeah, so in, in essence, it comes down to size. Aerosols are basically suspensions of solid or, or liquid particles in a gas. And the particles within them are usually uh, defined as less than 10 microns in diameter. 
whereas droplets are much bigger and can be over 100 microns and much uh, and therefore much larger the key thing is first of all droplets which are bigger evaporate in three to four seconds and therefore the spread is likely to be over a shorter distance probably about a meter or so and these are all estimates and i and, I, and i've got to qualify everything i say with the fact that i'm not a particle physicist i'm not a, a microbiologist and I'm, and I'm not an epidemiologist but this is as, as, far, as far as we all understand whereas aerosols um uh, which are as i said uh particles in a gas or uh, uh, suspended in gas they contain droplet nuclei which are smaller um less than 10 sometimes less than five microns and they can spread much further uh, so if you've seen those images when people sneeze and you see big droplets dropping onto the floor which is sort of ballistic spread and then you see a mist drifting off past, uh, out into the distance that represents aerosol and droplets represent droplets and they are a much shorter distance spread so why is that important? Well, lots of diseases, lots of viruses are spread by a combination of both. But the, the droplets, um, so the aerosols, which can spread further, they tend to penetrate deeper into uh, the, the respiratory system. We know that people with coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 disease, tend to have lower respiratory tract infections, which does give further evidence that it's, it, there is an element of aerosol transmission. So it's, in some ways, the size and the distance is spread. Not, not saying that aerosols can't spread uh, short distances as well, but they, they importantly can spread long distances. So you asked why is that important to ophthalm, well, doctors in ophthalmology. Now, ophthalmologists are one of the clinical specialists that spend a lot of time in the proximity of the nasopharynx. Um, and so even so, with that proximity and the time we spend there, we are, we as well as dentists and other, and other healthcare providers who spend time with them, are potentially at a, at a risk of greater viral load from that spread from both droplets and uh, and aerosol spread in healthcare environments can also be influenced by, in theatre, for example, we have positive pressure air, you know, theatres that push air downwards, and that can spread the aerosol further. So when you open the doors of an operating theatre, the, 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 air, the air from that operating theatre, which may be viral laden, then spreads out because of the positive pressure. And bear in mind, I've already said that they can spread it at a further distance, and it can, it, they can go even further distances within healthcare settings. What are AGPs, and why is this important to ophthalmic surgeons? Yeah, so um, AGPs is a very, very um, particularly in the UK, it's a very topical topic, as it were. So I've already mentioned what aerosols are, and so what AGPs are are procedures which are aerosol generating. So these are usually medical procedures that will generate aerosol often from uh, the patient. So these usually, uh, these obviously include intubation, extubation, bronchoscopy, and other other. Um, uh, medical procedures at the airway. Those procedures which could generate aerosol will obviously therefore potentially transmit viral-laden aerosols from patients to healthcare workers in the vicinity. Now, aerosol-generating procedures, one of the definitions is a high-speed surgical device. Now, a FACO probe has um, a frequency of over 40 hertz, and our vitrectomy probes, cutters, cut at nowadays in, in excess of five to 7,000 cuts. So whatever your definition is, I think most people would agree that those are high-speed surgical devices. Now, you know, in further in other in other settings, um, dental drills. There have been studies on dental drills and orthopedic drills that have demonstrated um, viral-laden um, particles being spread from the aerosol generated from those. Uh, nothing has been done within within ophthalmic surgical devices. But our devices and orbital drills that we might use in oculoplastic surgery, they are high-speed and they may well therefore generate an aerosol from the patient. That's why they're important because. Um, with that aerosol may come um, uh, many viruses, including um, SARS-CoV. Of course, the challenge we have is we don't know whether um, SARS-CoV-2 exists within 
ocular fluid, the aqueous or the vitreous. We don't know that yet. And maybe by the time this, this, this pod comes, comes out, we'll have a better idea. And the science will, will be marching at an incredible rate in that regard. But until we know that it's not present in the eye, I think precautionary measures are, are wise. And assuming that it is, knowing the devastation that this virus can we in the UK certainly have suggested to assume certainly past bind of vitrectomy cutters are high-speed devices, therefore aerosol-generating procedures, and therefore to protect ourselves as if they were. So within, so within the UK, there are separate guidelines with regard to personal protection when using aerosol. So it, we, we don't know, as of this recording, we don't know whether um, virus-laden aerosols are being liberated during vitrectomy, but in the concern that that might be the case, are there modifications that can be made by retina surgeons to minimize the likelihood of aerosol production? Within the pandemic, we obviously recommend doing as minimal surgery as possible. Okay, and, that, and that's uh, certainly the case. But within the pandemic, retinal detachments will probably be the most common operation that are performed worldwide. And the majority of those are, are, are repaired during, during vitrectomy. So we're not going to be able to reduce the numbers of those, although there is some suggestions certainly across the world currently that the numbers of people presenting with retinal detachments is reducing significantly. That's not because they're not there. I suspect that's because then the patients are too scared to seek help. So we're going to have potentially a big problem of, of PVR-related retinal detachments in the future. Anyway, so I'm digressing. So reducing the numbers of cases that we do, minimizing the number of people in the operating theater to the absolute essentials. So uh, having a senior surgeon do, uh, doing it, which will affect training, of course, potentially having one scrub, scrub nurse or scrub tech and maybe one runner. So that minimizes the number of people in the operating theater. And then um, a lot of us have started developing, um, uh, started using or creating extra drapes to put around the microscope. Um, and I think this is going to be, and I know of some companies that are now creating custom-made ones. And what that, you know, what that may do is produce like a tent or a skirt which you kind of operate underneath, much like you might do in a, in a, in a science lab. Um, and so that would then for, add, add an extra barrier to any aerosol generated by the patient and potentially by the, by the surgeon and the operating team from spreading to each other. Um, furthermore, I, would, I, I do this. I ask my patients to wear a mask during surgery. That's um, a, a surgical mask, a normal surgical mask. And then the surgical team, because we assume that this is an aerosol generating procedure and because we don't know the risk and because we're spending a lot of time operating not, cl not far from the nasopharynx. So you're going to get the aerosol generated just from, from the patient's breath and coughing. So we use um, the masks that are recommended for um, aerosol generating procedures, which in the UK are called FFP3 masks. FFP2 masks are, are, are equivalent to the N95 that is available in, in North America. And what that 95 means is it, it fills up 95% of, of, of the air. Now, with regard to specific techniques in vitrectomy surgery, I don't think we can change the settings to, to alter anything you can do. When you do a fluid air exchange, which is exchanging fluid for air, there are some people who like to use active aspiration, some people who use, like to use a flute, which is a passive aspirator. I think maybe using a passive aspirator might be better because when you use a passive aspirator, what happens is the fluid that you aspirate from the eye expels out onto the surface, whereas an active aspirator goes into the I think a lot of these things that we might have to do in terms of what I've already described, not with regard to the settings, I think it's relevant not just for vitrectomy surgery. I think it's going to be more important for, for vaco surgery. There are some videos that are appearing um, that are trying to, they've tried to show um, aerosol generation from surgical instruments. And in vitrectomy surgery, it probably is quite minimal because a lot of it's into the eye. But actually, there's some great videos now demonstrating that vaco, you've probably seen this yourself, you know, the mist that comes from, from, from the surgical site 
coming out, and that and that is probably um, um, an aerosol. Now, whether that's aerosol that's essentially aqueous or BSS or saline, we don't know. We, we don't. These are a lot of unknowns. There's a lot we don't know at present. But I suppose with regard to FACO, you could perhaps not turn the, the FACO on as you come out and just keep it on within the eye, and the same potential with a cutter. And there's a lot of unknowns, but I think minimizing the amount that you keep the insulin on in the eye and using extra drapes, I think, will be more commonplace. What about what the surgeon, him or herself, wears uh, for, for protection? Of course, I wear a surgical mask when I do surgery. I'm aware that uh, at, really, at best, the, the, the surgical mask will prevent me from, um, from distributing my own droplets, but it's not going to be anything to protect me. On the other hand, I'm concerned that if I wear something more, more cumbersome, it's going to interfere with uh, my ability to work with a, with a, with a microscope. Yeah, but as you correctly point out that the surgical mask has a better filter for exhalation. So from, for, from what you spread out to other people, less good at, at, at protecting you, less good at filtering out inhalation. Now, the N95, uh, sorry, the uh, N95 or uh, the FFP3 mask or two masks, they are a bit more cumbersome, and I wear them all the time now for the surgery. And even my, some of my colleagues who op have operated for decades without any mask, they are all now wearing the FFP3 mask or the N95 mask. Now, they are more cumbersome, but they don't actually impinge on the, on the, on the microscope. Actually, more of an issue is, because in the UK, certainly, we have guidelines for aerosol-generating procedures to, for, the, for the carer or the surgeon or the person undertaking it. Also wear goggles, very airtight goggles, much like swimming goggles, but bigger. A bit, a bit like the ones you might wear to go sort of diving. Now, that is a problem. That is a real challenge. I've, I've operated with, those, with such goggles on, and you get, first of all, I don't wear glasses, but even if, you, even if I did, it, it puts you quite far away from the eyepiece. You tend to get a little bit of artifact from the ring, and the view is not obviously as good. And I think that will be a challenge. I've operated with those on. I don't know how long I could continue doing more intricate surgery with that on but I could peel membranes, I'm not convinced. And I think that will be more of a challenge. And I think probably there are people already abandoning it. But actually, with regard to the mask, it's not really a great deal different to, to well, the ones we have in the UK, FFP3 masks, and not much more than the, if you already wear a, a type 2 surgical mask, it's not much. The listeners may have more insight into the answer to this question than you and I will, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It, it remains unknown whether COVID will become a seasonal menace. Do you feel that these recommendations should be carried forward as routine even after the current outbreak? Yeah, Josh, so, so none of us know the exact answer to that question. And it's, it's, I think COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time, a long time being, I think, over a year. During that time, all of our lives, socially and professionally, will, will have changed immeasurably, if I'm honest. And I think by the time we come out of this in a year's time, we'll have changed so much that actually a lot of these um, adaptations, I think, will become normal place. It'll be no longer acceptable to be seeing people in a, in a hospital waiting room that's made for 20 people, but putting 30 people in them. That's not going to be acceptable anymore. Traveling, um, I live not far from London, you live in New York, the, the, the metro or the underground, it's not going to be acceptable. Things are going to change immeasurably socially. But I think ophthalmically, um, I don't see that we're going to revert back in any time soon. I think slit lamp shields are going to be with us forever. I think um, uh, lasering and injecting, how we, how we deliver those things are going to be with us for a very long time. And, and I think we're going to adapt to that. And I think for, for the better. But I think I, I, in answer to your question, in, in short, yes, I think those measures are going to be with us um, for the foreseeable. 
Aman, thank you very much. This was I, I really I, I learned I learned a lot. There, there are things that that I'm going to change in in my own practice, and I know that I'm for sure I'm going to be discussing this with my with my colleagues. I mean, nothing could be more relevant right now. Well, thanks, Josh, for for for, for welcoming me onto your podcast. Um, I'm, I'm grateful. Aman Chandra is consultant ophthalmologist and vitreoretinal surgeon at the South End University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust in Westcliff-on-Sea, United Kingdom. His paper, Personal Protective Equipment for Vitreoretinal Surgery During COVID-19, appears in the publication I. Ask questions of Dr. Chandra or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at onticmind.com. As seen from here is a production of Ontic Mind Incorporated. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.